This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So thank you all for coming out on a cold, gray, rainy night. Appreciate you being here. Um, we decided to do this interview style because there's something about community mental health and an hour-long expert lecture that just didn't quite go. So thrilled to have you here, Susanna. Thank, thank you. you. Um, the only other thing I want to say by way of introduction is that um, I identify a little bit as a bridger of worlds. My mom is a Waldorf School music teacher, and my dad's an engineer. Pretty different worlds. And so I, I speak from the languages of data and science and health policy, but also from the perspective of humanity. And as Charles Eisenstein said it so amazingly, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. So I invite you tonight to have a conversation with us from both perspectives. Does that make sense? Awesome. Okay. Ready when you are. Yes, thank you, Liz. And I am excited to be back here. I came to school here. And so two years later, here we are with you and honored to be doing this interview with you. So thank you. Great. Um, well, so tell us a little bit about how did you get into this work of community as medicine? And yes, how, how did it happen? Sure. Uh, it's a big question. I have a lot to say about that. Uh, so I'm going to tell you two stories. Uh, one is professional and one is personal. Uh, here's the professional one first. Um, I'm a psychologist, which means I went to school for approximately ever. And uh, I specialize in integrated primary care behavioral health, which is a long and complicated way of saying that I work in healthcare contexts like hospitals and clinics to support patients, but also providers in being more effective. And during that time, I got to sit in on and, and be an observer and a coach for many, many doctor's appointments. And during that time, I got really curious about what I now call behavioral prescriptions. Back then, I didn't call them that. I just called them things doctors tell their patients to do. Uh, but I started keeping track of them. And I found something interesting, and this won't surprise you. Uh, it's that almost no matter the provider's identity, so specialists, primary care providers, therapists, case managers, and almost no matter the diagnosis or diagnoses of the patients, whether it was diabetes or hypertension or depression or social isolation, providers were giving 80% of their patients the same four behavioral prescriptions. And uh, we could guess what they are. They are, number one, you got it, exercise more. <laughs> number two, you should eat better. Number three, you need to reduce your stress. That's my favorite. And, and four is you need some meaningful social support, right? You need connection in your life. And then here's the part that would make me crazy over time is that they would deliver these prescriptions, which by the way are appropriate, right? Like they are the practices and experiences that underlie health. And then the doctor would say something that sounded like, Good luck with that. I'll see you in six months. <laughs> like, take care now. 
And, and I thought, wait a minute, like for those of us who prescribe, if we were to prescribe antidepressants or antibiotics or insulin and say, I'm sure you'll find them, take care now, it would be malpractice, right? Unethical at best. But for behavioral prescriptions, for the behaviors and the practices that actually do underlie human health and well-being, it's a prescription to nowhere, right? So as a country, we have this incredible de delivery system, this infrastructure, the pharmacies, that work roughly the same for everybody, right? Anybody can walk into CVS and they get treated roughly the same way. But for behavioral prescriptions, there's nothing there. So that was part of what got me um, hooked here, going, wait, there is something deeply, deeply wrong. A couple other just observations from working in healthcare. Um, here's what never happened, right? This is a conversation that never happened. As a doctor would say, okay, exercise more, eat better, reduce your stress, more plants, less sugar, take care now. And the patient would say, wow, like this is radical information. I have never heard these things before, right? You're telling me I should exercise? I didn't know that, right? That's just, that's just not how it goes, right? Patients say, yeah, I know I should. I should, I know, I'm sorry, I, yeah, I will, I'll do better. So what that told me and my co-founder, Dr. Ben Emmert Aronson, in our early conversations, we said, you know what, lack of information is just not the problem, right? It's not that people don't know what to do. Another proof point that we started to laugh about was that, you know, if information was the driver of health, then anybody who worked in healthcare or social services should be like, shining paragons of health, right? Like physical health, emotional health, social health. And when we looked at the staff in our clinics, the providers, the medical assistants, the therapists, we were exhausted and stressed and downright irritable and struggling with the exact same chronic conditions that we were sort of glibly trying to cure in our patients. What actually would happen in appointments is that uh, our patients who had taken time off work, unpaid time typically, to see their doctor in the middle of the day, because that's when you can see a doctor, would say, yeah, doc, okay, I'll eat better, I'll exercise more, I'll meditate. Uh, and then they would leave and pay their copay, and they would then take two buses to try to get back to their job. And then they would get their kids from school and get home, to a neighborhood that wasn't safe for them to really exercise outside in, especially in the evening, to a community where there was no full-service grocery store. And we were telling them that they were supposed to shop for organic produce, clean it, chop it, cook it, feed it to their kids who don't recognize kale and quinoa as food, right? It's not what they grew up eating. And then, you know, clean up, help the kids with their homework, go to bed, and then she's supposed to go to the gym and meditate <laughs> yep. and see her friends. Like, who are we kidding? So the, the, the whole social structure surrounding our patients made it virtually impossible for them to do the things that we were cheerily telling them to do. And we started to say, you know, it's like, it's like tossing someone in the middle of the ocean and then saying, like, don't get wet. Right? Like, it's imperative for your health that you say dry. And here's some saran wrap and your copay is $50. You know, <laughs> good like, luck that's, with that, right? Good right? luck, right? Yeah. That's, that's what our healthcare system 
was doing with the best of intentions. So, here's the real, if I can get dark for a moment here. I can take it. The, <laughs> the real tragedy is that our patients didn't come back a week later and say, hey doc, that whole behavioral prescription you gave me is crap because the social circumstances surrounding my life make it impossible, right? That never happened. What happened is just that they didn't come back. Or if they did, they felt shame. Absolutely. Disempowered, right? Right. They would say, I'm sorry, I didn't have enough willpower. I'll, I'll do better in the future, but I, I'm sorry. Um, anybody familiar with the phrase upstream medicine? Is that familiar? Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like the story goes back 30 or 40 years. The idea is like, imagine there are two villages, upstream and downstream. And as long as the villagers of downstream could remember, they would periodically find people drowning in the river, floating down the river, struggling for their lives. And the good, helpful villagers of downstream would try to rescue them. And they started with like life rings and, and, uh, you know, they would dive in after them. And over time, they got better technology. So they would, now they have lifeboats and CPR and early warning systems. And they would drag people out of the river and dry them off and warm them up and give them some food and send them back on their way walking to upstream. Sounds good, right? The question is, like, there's something missing from this, right? And the field of public health has gotten increasingly savvy about, like, wait a minute, did they ever go upstream and figure out, well, how are people ending up in the river in the first place, right? Right, right, like, right. Are they falling in, jumping in? Are they being pushed in? By whom and why? So upstream medicine in the last 10, 20 years has gotten more savvy about this and has said, wait, you know, moldy apartments are upstream from asthma, mm -hmm. right? And unsafe... Right, and unsafe neighborhoods are upstream from obesity, et cetera. But we're not yet talking much about psychological upstreamism. Like what are the internal psychological and interpersonal experiences that are upstream of mental health? So I would suggest that that experience of shame, a feeling like one has failed, is psychologically upstream if it persists, if it's repeated from a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and resignation. And you know from, from our patients showing up at Open Source Wellness, they have 15 or 20 or 30 years of deep resignation about their chronic illness. Depression and the self-talk is just very naturally very negative. Yeah. And I would say that, that that resignation and hopelessness is upstream from despair. And despair is upstream over time from violence to oneself, to one's family, to one's community. So at the risk of being really dark here, you know, all of us get into healthcare with good intentions. I've, I've worked with a lot of young doctors and they fall in love with medicine or at least the idea of medicine. But we all take this Hippocratic oath, right, to do no harm. I'm not convinced that our system, that our participation in this system that potentiates despair actually does no harm. 
And for the record, it creates despair in us too, right? To be a provider that is doling out these prescriptions that deep down we know they aren't going to be able to act on, and then writing non-compliant or not treatment adherent in the chart, I think that generates despair in us as providers and in the system too. Yeah, you know, so, I've never been in those shoes, but mm. uh, I'm hearing you and it answers a lot of questions that I've had because mm. I've often wondered, mm. are the intentions good? Are they aware, you know, doctors? Yeah. What's happening? Yeah. yeah, that's a longer yeah. conversation, but I, I am convinced that most doctors are doing the very, very best they can in a system that is not set up well. So it's, I know it's heavy, heavy for seven o'clock on a Thursday night, uh, but I said I would tell you two stories. So here's the more personal story. Uh, since I left home at 17, I have lived in community. So if you're imagining like hippie communes and gurus, like that, it's not that. Um, but it is people living cooperatively in a way that balances privacy and personal space with shared resources, essentially. And I've lived in cooperative houses where people have their own bedrooms but share a big kitchen and other spaces. And I've lived in communities that are more like co-housing, mm -hmm. where individuals or families have their own small units but share also like a big common house. So shared dining, shared uh, guest spaces and exercise spaces, et cetera. And uh, just to share a little bit about the house that I live in now, there are eight of us. And I cook dinner twice a month. So twice a month, I come home and I spend three hours, right? I do the chopping veggies and the whole thing, and I put together a really healthy plant-based dinner. And it takes a lot of time. How many people do you cook for? I feed eight people and then enough for lunch the next day, right? It's, it's an endeavor. But the rest of the nights of the week, throughout the month, I come home and dinner is handled for me. And so are the dishes, by the way, right? <laughs> Utopia. I mean, I didn't know. I just learned about this a couple of years ago. I didn't know it existed before. I don't know. <laughs> you know, similarly, at about 7.30 every morning, a number of my housemates gather in the living room. And they sit quietly for about 15 minutes. And some of them meditate and some of them journal. And at the end of that, there's a quick check-in. Like, how are you doing? What's on your plate today? Just sharing for a few moments. And if I say, like, I really, I need to exercise every day, someone will say to me, like, okay, I'll do it with you. Or, like, at the very least, I will knock on your door and make sure you are actually up and exercising. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay? Yes. Okay, so my reason for sharing this is not because I think everyone should live in community, right? It's a giant pain to live in community, <laughs> right? You have to have meetings about, like, what kind of peanut butter to buy, and like the thermostat, don't get me started about the thermostat. <laughs> May I interject? It's so funny because see, I'm Italian and you would think, because Italians, you know, you would think we thrive in community, but I was raised in a pretty individualistic way. So mm. it's so funny to be here in the US and learn from you how to be wow. in community. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I wrote my dissertation on co-housing, on social support and social capital and social sustainability. and. Um, there's much from that I've forgotten, but I will never forget when I, I traveled around and did these interviews and one guy who'd lived in co-housing for about 30 years looked at me and he said, living in co-housing is the most expensive personal development course you will ever take. Oh, yeah. So 
And the currency being? Oh, God. Just, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is expensive. Yeah. And just yeah. the, the time and the engagement the and the emotional energy. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not suggesting that everyone should live in community. I'm not sure that it's culturally feasible or financially feasible for everybody. But what I do know is that I'm living reasonably well, not because of wealth and not because of willpower, but because the social structures around me have it such that the healthy thing is the easy thing, right? There are defaults built into the social fabric of my life that make it a downhill experience rather than an uphill experience. So I was training in clinics and hospitals and emergency rooms, seeing what I watched happen while I was living in community and thinking there has to be a way to bring what we know about social design to healthcare to make it effective. So that's a long answer for yes. how I got into this. And I've been wanting to ask you this question for years. So I'm glad we get to sit down. Now you know. I never knew what drove you to this, <laughs> really. You know. And I'm glad that it's personal too. Um, thank you for sharing. And so what is open source wellness? And uh, yeah, how, th how does it work? Tell us about it. Okay. Not that I don't know. I mean, I'm <laughs> but tell us. It's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah. So my co-founder, Ben, and I left clinical practice about three and a half years ago, and we said, we are going to create a behavioral pharmacy. We are going to use what we know about social design to create a delivery system for one universal prescription. And that prescription we have abbreviated to be move, nourish, connect, be. So physical activity, healthy food, social connection, and stress reduction. And, and when we were designing this, we had a couple deep commitments. And one was that it had to be experiential, meaning we were not going to lecture people or give them handouts or tell them what to do. We were just going to do these things with people. And we said it had to be democratized, that it was not going to be another replication of the boutique wellness industry, because Whole Foods and Pilates have that right. figured yeah. out, yeah. handled. Exactly. Um, and and that we were not going to hire licensed medical professionals who are expensive and sometimes great, but trained to speak from the perspective of an expert, that we were going to use health coaches and peer leaders, mm -hmm. that we were going to bring people who would share their life experience and bring their humanity and their vitality to bear on this work. So at Open Source Wellness, we do those four things, move, nourish, connect, be. And we, we do this work in clinical healthcare settings, in low-income housing settings, in community settings, and in corporate settings. And every aspect of what we do is tailored to the population, but here's what doesn't change. And you know this better than I do. We bring a large group together for 16 weeks, two hours a week. And we start with physical activity. We do about 25 minutes of fun physical movement that doesn't feel like exercise. It doesn't so feel like fun. work, it's like <laughs> play. And then we have a seat in a large circle and we do about five minutes of some sort of stress reduction. No dogma, no religion, just some technique for you know, reducing autonomic arousal. And there's then some sort of lesson, we call it a spark, that's like an experience related to one of our topics. So it could be on um, balanced meals or on setting boundaries in relationships. Setting goals. Setting like goals. Today, I just yeah. taught one. You taught on yeah. setting goals? In Haywood. Nice. 
Um, and then the large group splits out into small groups and a small group consists of one coach, one peer leader and about six participants and they have a meal together. So they sit down and they talk for about an hour. And this is where, if you press me, this is where the magic happens because people tell each other the truth about their lives. And yes, they talk about their health and their diagnoses and their goals, but they also talk about their hopes and their dreams and their traumas and their aspirations and their families. And it's not therapy, we're really clear about that, but it's deeply, deeply healing. It is. They learn to be vulnerable uh, at these tables and it truly is where the magic happens. You know, I, I've witnessed enough of these uh, situations where I understand it's actually not even the coach. <laughs> I mean, of course, as a coach, you learn to orchestrate and, and make sure that everyone has enough time and enough space to share. Uh, we call it share the air, yeah? But then if you have someone who's willing to, to go there and to be really vulnerable, it kind of sets the bar for everyone else to really share what's going on. And it's beautiful. I learn a lot from those nights. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then our coaches, who are just amazing human beings, are in touch with their participants throughout the week by phone and by text. So at the end of every open source wellness session, participants write their own prescription. The coaches don't write prescriptions. Everybody writes their own prescription. And, you know, often it's something related to health and well-being. Uh, but, but what started happening is that people were writing prescriptions like, I'm going to floss my teeth or like, I'm going to deal with my credit cards. And these are things that we had never taught from the front of the room, right? We don't talk about dental hygiene or financial health. But what we found is that when people get a little traction in their lives, right, they have some successes, they feel a little activated, they start taking on the things that matter to them that may have nothing to do with health. And then the coaches the next day or the day after saying, how are you doing with that? Do you need any support? How's that going? The whole group is on a text thread together. Yes, exactly. Each other. And then the beauty of that is that, you know, I cannot be on my phone all day long to check who wrote what. But the it's it's beautiful because then everyone else from the group is so supportive towards the other person. And so sometimes there's even uh, accountability being held between or among participants, which, again, makes my job easier. And it's just beautiful to witness. And nice. So nice. It's been a process. But. Yeah. So um, my co-founder, Ben, is a statistician, and he, we're both researchers by training, and we have collected data really from the first day on our participants saying, like, does this make a difference? And what we found is this fascinating arc of change. Um, within the first two, three weeks, participants say things like, wow, I just don't feel as alone anymore, or I have a sense of hope. Right? I feel like I belong here and somebody's got my back. That's sort of phase one. And then in, in sort of weeks three through six, we start to see changes in people's physical activity, you know, intake of fruit and vegetables, practicing of, of these sort of you know, move, nourish, connect, be things in their lives. And then it's in the latter portion of the program that we see depression scores coming down by 47%. We see hypertension coming down by 15% among hypertensive patients. And recently, uh, we saw a 77% decrease in emergency department visits and unplanned hospitalizations, which has gotten the attention of the insurers who are financially on the line for those 
insurance visits or those, those emergency visits. So I am hopeful that this work can spread not only in the community and in the housing context, but also through the clinical healthcare sites that we're working with. We're, we're currently partnering with Alameda County to spread this to all the federally qualified health centers in Alameda County, which is thrilling and a huge endeavor. Um, and we've had to get really creative with the finances. One of the things that happens when I travel around to speak about this is, is people from the middle of the country say like, oh, you're in California. You must have tons of money and everybody's so <laughs> right. progressive. You know, you can do that there, but we can't do that here. And um, it's sort of my mission to, to prove that wrong. Um, and one of the ways that we've done that is by combining our program with group medical visits. So the essence is that we bring our health coaches right into the doctor's office, into the hospital. And we take over a community space for about two hours. We run our program. And we have one of their doctors or nurse practitioners participate pull patients aside for short check-ins, and then bill insurance for every patient there. If that doctor would have seen eight or nine patients during individual visits without us, they're seeing 16 to 20 with us, which generates a ton of extra revenue, which then pays for the program and more. So a lot of my travels this semester on sabbatical have been to sort of spread this message of, yes, it is possible to do this, even if you don't have a ton of financial abundance. Great. Now I know. Yeah, now you know. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> we had to come here to find out about all this. Um, and so I hear you talk about open source wellness as a model, and a mm -hmm. model that's been working really well and successfully. Of course, we want to expand and be more and more places. But also, I hear you talking about it as a broader movement and so um, towards community as medicine. Uh, can you share a little bit more about this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, models are great, right? Models are about what we know, what works. And it is my not secret desire that this model spread everywhere. But movements are infinitely more powerful than any one model. And I think of movements as being about not what we know, but what kind of questions we're asking. So a couple questions that I just invite us to be thinking about. Uh, one is, what would it look like if we as a nation got as serious about the delivery of behaviors and experiences as we are about the delivery of medications? What if we had half the infrastructure of CVS and Walgreens devoted to delivering, move, nourish, and connect, and be? People say, oh, it must be expensive. You know, you have coaches and you have to feed people. Like, well, what's expensive is cardiac bypass. Right. And inpatient hospitalizations, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. So what would it look like if we invested upstream in these basic practices that people need without waiting for the downstream health problems to occur. The other question that I would pose comes from one of my favorite quotes in the world. Uh, James Rouse said, a community is a garden in which to grow people. Are there any gardeners like out there? Anybody like to garden? Yeah? Okay, awesome. So if you have a plant and it's not growing well, do you like shame it or write it a prescription? 
You do. <laughs> Never had anybody say that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Typically, if a, if a plant is not growing well, we don't get mad at it. We don't say try harder. We look to what's missing in the environment that would have thriving be its natural expression, right? Like, is it better soil? Is it water? Is it sun? Right? So, so my question and, and what a question that we come back to at Open Source Wellness is, how do we design environments physical environments, social environments, internal psychological environments, such that the natural expression of humanity is health and thriving. So those are the kind of questions that I, I seek to help power the movement of community as medicine. And I think it's happening. Thank you for sharing this. Mm. I think it's, it's definitely something that we witness every Tuesday night. Mm at the Prevention Institute mm -hmm. and at Hayward, at our other location, um, and at the other one, at the Kusaha. But it's just, it is creating a movement. In fact, after people finish the program, they still hang out together. They create bonding relationships and friendships, and they keep it up. They even have potlucks and cook vegan, amazing plant-based meals that they share together. So this continues. And so if that's not a movement, what do you call it? <laughs> right? um, again, I, I grew up, I just want to share a little bit about how it was for me. I took all of the organic, fresh produce for granted in Italy in the 80s and 90s because there was not such a labeling of food. It was just what we had and grew up in a smaller town. Um, kind of a very close to a big city, but rural setting. And so next door we had these amazing farmers who would deliver us weekly baskets of uh, fresh veggies. And, and I didn't appreciate it at the time. And when I moved much later on, when I moved to the U.S. and I saw what the health crisis was here and the food crisis, I, um, I really realized that something needs to be done. So... I was so grateful to find open source wellness to be a place where I could not only get my dose of medicine, because I get it, uh, but also work and thrive and find community and continue on. Mm. And so it's special. Um, did I interrupt you? No, it's okay. perfect. No, it's great. <laughs> um, and so you've been traveling a bunch this last year. We've missed you. <laughs> but also glad that you've been able to spread the word and uh, go to other states in the U.S. Uh, what's, how has it been taken? What's the reaction been so far? And uh, yeah, what responses have you been getting? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I have traveled a whole bunch to talk with um, providers and administrators and, and folks who are trying to get creative about uh, addressing the challenges that they face as clinics and as hospitals and then as insurers because health insurers are the ones footing the bill. And uh, a very predictable thing happens. So I, I will share this vision with them. I paint a picture for them about doctors saying, I've written you a prescription, but not for medication. It's a different kind of prescription. It's a prescription for participation in a community where people will actually do physical activity and cook healthy meals together, et cetera. And I bring this to life and I hopefully give them an experience of it. Um, and at the end of my talk, somebody, in fact, sometimes many people will come up to me and quietly say, um, I need this. 
or like my mom needs this, mm-hmm. right? My mom is in Kansas and she desperately needs this. Can you, you know, is it here? Can you help me create this for her? And and the short answer, of course, is yes, yes, you can, you can have this. And we are working to spread this model, but I wouldn't wait for open source wellness to show up, nor would I wait for a doctor to diagnose and prescribe anything. And my hope is to support individuals and families and groups in having their attention on move, nourish, connect, and be, and really actively cultivating that in their lives. So, you know, what is it like for an individual at the beginning of their day to say, okay, move, nourish, connect, be, what's baked into my life and what's not? What do I need to do? And what would it be like for families at the end of the day over dinner to say, okay, what's everybody done already? And then what do we need to do tonight? Right? Do we need to go for a walk? Do we need quiet time? You know, do we need to hang out and play games and laugh with each other? Is that what's, what's missing? And, and what would it be like for our clinical systems to uplift and enact these? And then for our social systems to have these baked into the fabric of our worlds rather than something that you need a lot of wealth or a lot of willpower to manifest. So that's the kind of conversation that we're having when I travel around. Yeah. Powerful. Yeah. I'm curious about what what are the states that you have visited and where you feel that it's taking grasp. Sure. Yeah, I've I've been all over uh, in the past year. Um, here's the one that I'm most excited about. Uh, I was just in Washington state in the San Juan islands. These are teeny little islands off the coast of Washington. And, um, they are the first licensing partner of ours where we have essentially trained a team to deliver the open source wellness model on their own. And we're providing support for them to do that. And, um, It was beautiful to watch them adapt what we do for an incredibly rural population. And um, just to watch the universality of this work, um, you know, we've always, we've always said move, nourish, connect, be is universal. And you don't need a PhD or an MD or a nursing degree to support individuals and families and communities in this. Um, but but watching that happen has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life, I would say. I remember them, uh, the the team of Lopez Island. I didn't even know, pardon my ignorance, I didn't even know where the Lopez Islands were when they came to uh, Lake Merritt and visited us a month ago or so. Um, they were blown away by the whole experience and just to know that now they're creating it somewhere else and... Uh, they're going to support their own communities is just, it feels really good. Yeah. And hopefully more and more to come. More and more to come. We're talking with folks in Kansas and Florida and Texas and, um, yeah. yeah. We also have this, uh, is it like once a month, once every couple months, providers night mm-hmm. where the doctors and medical providers come and join the program for the the time of the evening and we do ask them to show up as human as human beings and not as doctors so leave that doctor hat um to the side and you do see the transformation happening from when they walk into the room maybe feeling tense or feeling exhausted or 
um, and then the facial expression completely changing at the end of the evening just by again moving together um, meditating and then share at the tables so that's also been one of my favorite nights yeah yeah so fun to really invite healthcare professionals to show up as full humans with all of their own health and well-being challenges and victories as well. It's it's an extraordinary experience. Yeah. And they need it just like we we all do. <laughs> Don't we all? Don't we, we all, all do. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, a random question. I'm actually curious about why did you choose Open Source Wellness as the name of the organization? Do people ever think it's an app or yeah, all the time. Yeah, I get messages on LinkedIn all the time. Like, you know, like, how does your product work? Or like, how do I download your app? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. You know, I just, I'm not answering your question right away, but one of our commitments early on was that this is going to be place-based work. Meaning that, that with all the information and all the apps that like remind and cajole you to exercise and eat healthy like at some point you have to actually move your honest to god body you have to actually put food in it like you cannot actually digitize the food and so we said we said we are going to actually do this with people rather than tell them what to do so the name open source wellness yeah um we came up with that name out of this premise that nothing we're doing is actually rocket science right like physical movement eating good food managing stress connecting meaningfully with each other. Like it does not take licensed medical personnel for us to animate our communities as platforms or delivery vectors for those four things. In fact, they're just the four things that successful societies have done for millennia, right? Societies that work have these baked into the fabric of the social structure. And we have lost that, right? Right now, you do need willpower and wealth and a lot of sociocultural privilege, actually, to pull that off. I was walking out the door of one of our sites. I don't, I don't get to be at our sites all that often anymore. Um, but recently, I was at one. And on my way out, someone said, Liz, is this like church for health? <laughs> um, I like that. And, and my first thought was like, no, you know, this has nothing to do with church. But, but on reflection, church is a social structure that works for some people, not all, but for some people, as a delivery system for human goodness, right? Yes. And sometimes with and a I lot of- And I think that's what they meant by that question. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> right? And it, and it often delivers some not-so-goodness as well. Uh, but- Healthcare right now happens to be a social structure or an institution that touches just about everybody, right? People who will never show up in a therapist's private practice office will show up for primary care because something gets their attention. And it happens to be the social system that has the financial burden of health, right? When people are in the emergency rooms and needing expensive procedures, that expense lands on the healthcare system. So they are motivated, right? They are motivated to do something. And, and they know that healthcare, clinical care, accounts for 10% of the variance of health, right? 10% of the variance of your total health is determined by the clinical care you receive. Now, to be fair, if you break your leg, right, then it's kind of 100%, right? Like that's what you need in that moment. But for most of us, it's 
our environments, it's the policies and the systems and the daily behaviors that drive our health. So, at one level, open source wellness is about transforming healthcare and health outcomes. And so because of that, we have to speak data and health insurance premiums and policy. And we set an audacious goal a long time ago that it would be just as easy for someone to walk into open source wellness as it would be for them to walk into McDonald's. Just as affordable, just as accessible, just as ubiquitous. And at another level, at, at perhaps a more personal or a more human level, I think of open source wellness as creating avenues for human goodness, right? Creating channels through which the, the overflowing and abundant nature of humans to be good to each other to flow, right? It's normalizing and removing the risk for people to be kind to each other. And that's really part of what we see in our groups. It's not that our coaches are delivering a lot of technical health information. It's that we're creating a culture in which, you know, as the Dalai Lama says, people need to be needed, right? We create a culture where people can receive and also can give and to find themselves in a, in a generative and uplifting flow. Sometimes when people kind of find themselves on the edges of society for some time, whether it's the result of chronic illness or disease or mental health challenges or poverty, right? It can be so hard to find themselves in an uplifting flow or spiral. And at heart, that's what we're committed to doing. And health is a convenient avenue to do just that. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Get a little bit of goosebumps. <laughs> um, well, also, it's kind of, thank you for this, Liz. And it's kind of ironic how in our digital times and digital era now, what is actually the simplest thing to do is to go back to our roots and how ancestors used to live and well, at least from the community piece. I remember being here at CIS in my master's program and having uh, a paper to write um, that made me explore the blue zones, what the blue zones are. Some of you might be familiar with them. So these are these pockets around the world of communities where people thrive. And so what were the elements that uh, made them succeed because it was definitely not uh, related to financial wealth, right? And so what was found, and I think you may help me now remembering where they are, but like I know one one was Okinawa, another one is near Nuoro in Sardinia, which of course Italy, um, <laughs> and there are uh, several other. One is actually here in Loma Linda, California, because it's Seventh Day. Adventist community, um, and a couple more. Uh, but what they found is that, as we are seeing with open source wellness, the the commonalities the commonalities were eating healthy foods, moving, but natural movement, and so not necessarily weightlifting or, or doing anything too strenuous on the body, uh, and. Uh, community, uh, praying together, having a sense of belonging, sense of purpose. And that led to longevity. And that's exactly what the, the um, definition of the blue zone was. So what causes longevity and what are the common elements to it? And it's it seems to be uh, what we're trying to recreate 
uh, with open source wellness, even though, of course, there are limitations. But um, at the end of the night, what we do after we uh, finish our meals and um, finish our coaching sessions with our groups is share gratitudes. Share gratitudes in front of the whole bigger group, uh, have, uh, make some declarations, and uh, so, so people actually are holding themselves accountable in front of the whole group on what they're going to do that week, between that Tuesday and the next one, uh, to achieve their, their North, North Star goal, we call it, the long-term goal. And then uh, we also have offers and requests, which is a time in which people get to uh, make themselves available to offer some uh, active service and, or, or request help, request someone else to it could be anything from um, walking around the lake on a day together or uh, getting a ride home you know and it's just uh, amazing to see how people do step up and we have like a big family there so thank you for that um well i guess i'm just I w if, if you're curious i'm happy to share some of the participants you know experiences but also we'd like to know what people can do to get involved with open source wellness and uh, uh, to bring this movement to life even more sure thank you um you know one of the most encouraging things to me is what happens when people's dose at open source wellness completes so a dose is typically 16 weeks you know like you get 10 days of antibiotics you get 16 weeks with us and at the end of that 16 weeks, what happens is that people are like, I'm not leaving. <laughs> They're like, you can't kick me out. Like, these are my people, right? This is what I do. Um, and, you know, that worked for about three months and then we had a problem. And uh, so we, people folks now have choice, choices and they can just graduate and be complete. They can apply to be a peer leader, which uh, many folks go on to do with great success. Um, but, but some of our peer leaders have started what they're calling OSWX. So OSW is for open source wellness and the X is like TEDx, you know, it's like the independently organized version. <laughs> and at first I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> but, but a group of our graduates now get together twice a month and they do the same things that we have we have helped train them to do. So they do physical movement, mindfulness, they eat a meal or snacks together, and they share their stories together. And that is the most encouraging thing in the world to me because uh, a program can only support people for so long, and then it has to become self-sustaining or generative in some way. As if you're a good therapist, you're gonna yeah, let right? them go at some point. You gotta work right? yourself out of a job. Great. Yeah, so um, I have my attention right now on clinical systems and the, the communities that need it the most, right? Like that is where our, our organization has to be focused. And we're doing some low-income housing work and some corporate work. And um, by the way, I don't ever recommend starting a nonprofit with four different business models at once. Like not a great <laughs> way to spend three years. Um, but just, you know, while we have our attention focused on populations that need it the most, I, I am so inviting of and hungry for the inspired creativity and collaboration of those who want to help make this a movement for anybody and everybody. Because we all need this, right? 
all of us need something like this in one way or another. So here's a radical idea. Imagine it's a few years in the future and uh, there exists, maybe Open Source Wellness has created, a platform by which individuals who have some small amount of training can open their homes or their community spaces to others to share in Move, Nourish, Connect, Be. And that this were in some way monetized. So someone could say, okay, Saturday afternoon, you know, walk around the lake, guided meditation via YouTube, um, we're making burritos, and we're gonna sit around and talk. And the contribution is $15. Like Uber for community and health. I don't know, right? We haven't tried this. We've tried a lot of things and we learn from experience, but I, am, I just welcome what's possible as a movement beyond a model. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, thank you. I mean, you've, you've worked with some participants who are essentially kind of doing this, right? Oh, yes. There are people uh, still involved who have become peer leaders, who started as, as participants for the three months period, and they're still there uh, because they bring so much to the newbies who come in and and want to experience it. Uh, I'm thinking of several now. I've met many, many incredible humans who have uh, really taken on a big task to uh, change their lives for the better and transform even their belief system and their mindsets, because that's a big part of uh, of creating change. And uh, they're almost you know, you can think of many probably also, they've completely um, morphed since the day, first day they came in, being visibly depressed and not even wanting to stay for the whole night. And then um, a few months later, just, I'm sold, I wanna be here forever. And we have several people, I'm not gonna name them for, of course, the sake of confidentiality, but they uh, shared that they had been on antidepressants for 40 years, 40 years. And when they started with us, they just they just found a way not to need the med medications anymore. Now, of course, this is not a blanket statement. You know, some people will need to continue, but a lot, a lot of folks have been able to, like you said earlier, um, decrease and by almost like 50% depression you know we think look at data uh, so there's that uh, there are people who have uh, managed their diabetes um, and they continue to do so they learn to cook they now know how to go for grocery shopping and they'll get together outside and go together to the farmers market um, I know that last year for Christmas you know my family is in Italy so sometimes the holiday season gets a little bit um, sad you know I, I get homesick and I don't always have the opportunity to travel back home but last Christmas with several of our participants we we met on Christmas day I had a gathering later but we walked around Lake Merritt for a couple of hours and just shared stories and it was five or six of us wow. of all ages and all and to me because I'm a big advocate for diversity and all kind of diversity so um for me, I was in heaven. I didn't know it was possible. <laughs> but if wow. you told me 10 years ago, someday you're going to be in California just having friends from 
all walks of life and just spending Christmas Day together, I I wouldn't have believed it. So yeah, and it's it's happening again this Christmas. Really? <laughs> yes. Oh my God! And we've gone to concerts. Also, I know. It's weird. I, I will never forget the day that uh, the o, the OSWX team. I sort of had it that they did health things together, and I remember saying, "Well, what did you guys do last week?" And they said, "Oh, we went out to karaoke together." And I was like, "What?" Yeah. You know, and, and I was reggae thinking, like, and all kinds. Like, of what is the liability around this? You know, like trained as a psychologist, right. and and my coaches really brought it home, and they were like, "Liz, this is community as medicine, right? This is what people need to be doing." I mean, I had to quit my restaurant job on the weekends because I wanted to join the activities with everyone <laughs> um, eventually. Uh, so there's a lot happening outside, yeah. Um, and it keeps happening. Uh, I have my first youngster at the table, 12-year-old, because sometimes moms will join the program and they don't have uh, childcare for their, for their children. And so a couple of times we've had... Um, yeah, young teenagers joining the groups, and so this is a new experience. Now, I haven't, I have never coached anyone younger than twenty-one, but uh, it's it's like a, a family extension. I think it's going well so far. Yeah, we'll beautiful. See. I mean, because I think you're a visionary, and I love that about you, and I admire you so much. I want to know where do you see this going in the next three to five years. Okay. Uh, Blow my mind. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, yeah, so I, I think that, that there being a behavioral pharmacy should be the standard of clinical care, right? The doctor should never again be able to say, do this, do that, good luck with that, take care now, and for that to be considered good care, right? I think that experiential, community-based delivery systems for human well-being need to be, you know, the standard. And uh, I, my aspiration is that our health policy starts to cover this work as a covered benefit so that we're not scrambling for grants, but just like food as medicine started to gain traction, that community as medicine gets the same kind of uh, attention and recognition and gets built into private and public health plans. And then long game, uh, I, I start to sound radical when I talk about this, but uh, like, you know, what's really not expensive is like lentil soup, right? <laughs> and like vegetables, like these are not expensive. It's true. Right? So I, I'm not suggesting we go to a kibbutz system or that we, um, that we remove private options. But what if there were community spaces where dinner was prepared and free and physical activity was accessible for kids and families together. And mindfulness was not a boutique thing, but an everybody thing. Like, yes. think about public schools, right? Incredible, enormous spaces, commercial kitchens, gym space, dining rooms that are, that are dark from 3 p.m. on. Like, what if we took schools over and open source wellness staff came in at three and said, instead of kids going home or going to daycare to exhausted parents who now have to like conjure dinner and help with homework. What if families gathered at schools and dinner was handled and physical activity was handled and social time where adults could have adult conversations with other adults was handled, 
Like I get curious about what's possible in a society that valued those things, invested in them, and made them the default. So. I think we need to call Michael Moore and have a documentary. Let's do that. <laughs> I was just thinking about where to invade next. Okay. Sold. I love that. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you so, so much. This has been fun and inspiring, and we'll be here for a couple moments afterwards. So happy to give you our cards and have follow-up conversations. And um, thanks. It's been fun talking <laughs> with you all. Thank you for coming out. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. 